This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, it's Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening into the podcast. Today is part two of our conversation with Gary Eastridge. Gary joined Don West. He's National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe and Distinguished Criminal Defense Attorney. And our friend Steve Moses. He's a CCW Safe contributor and a well-regarded firearm instructor. Gary joins us uh, to talk more about some of the broad themes that we encounter when we look at these self-defense cases. And Gary's uniquely qualified to do so. Gary is part of the CCW SAFE team. In fact, he's uh, head of the critical response team. So as a member of CCW SAFE, should you ever need to call upon our services, Gary's one of the first people that you're going to have contact with. He gets on the ground and starts taking care of business right away in the aftermath of a self-defense shooting. One of the reasons Gary's so well qualified to do that is that he has a long and storied career as a homicide detective, and he also served in the role of internal investigations for uh, use of force with officers in the Oklahoma City Police Department. Uh, He told us a little bit about that uh, in our conversation last week, so if you haven't heard that, I encourage you to go back and take a listen. But uh, all that is to say that when Gary talks about certain things, I like to listen. Uh, There's a lot to learn. And, you know, if you ever respond to one of our podcasts or one of the articles that we publish on ccwsafe.com, very likely it's Gary who's going to be one of the first that reads your email. And one of the things that he brings up in this podcast is often... Some of our listeners, some of our readers feel that we second guess armed defenders or concealed carriers who have been in self-defense scenarios. And that's not the intention of what we do here. I mean, we go back and look at things with a hard, critical eye. But the truth is, within the context of the criminal justice system, every self-defense case is going to be looked at with a hard, critical eye. And um, the armed defenders in the cases that we look at uh, often make the best choices they can with the tools and the training that they have, with the knowledge they have at the moment. And I think the point is that if they had better tools, more training, or more knowledge of the types of things that can go right or wrong, in a self-defense scenario that they would have better results. Our goal with this show is to help give you the knowledge to have better results should you ever find yourself in a self-defense scenario. So we're going to talk a little bit about our practice of second-guessing self-defense cases. Uh, We're going to talk about the theme of just because you're justified to use deadly force doesn't mean you always have to. And you'll find that Gary... Eastridge himself was involved in an officer-involved shooting, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about what the long-term impact of being involved in a shooting uh, is and and how that can affect your life in uh, myriad ways. So uh, thanks again for listening in. Here's 
the conversation between me, Don West, Steve Moses, and our good friend, Gary Eastridge. I think a lot of people are taught in, 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 on the foundation this is good advice, which is you don't you don't draw your firearm unless you feel that you're legally justified to use deadly force. That's right. Um, you don't draw your firearm until you believe that you need to use it to defend yourself, which would include um, firing a round at another person. But that doesn't mean that just because you've drawn it you have to fire it if the circumstances change. Uh, that is absolutely correct. Uh, in many instances, and I think this is a product of uh, competent gun handling, the very act of responding and bringing a gun into action quickly or unexpectedly, even if your intent is to defend yourself, which means you are probably going to have to engage this person, if there's sufficient time for that person to respond and give you an indication that they're no longer interested in pursuing this, then you absolutely want to stop. And that is why tactics play into this, uh, or, that, or that's what I believe. Uh, being able to understand what's unraveling and maintaining something that gives you time, which could be distance or obstacles, uh, it could be even your elevation. You know, there's a reason why they say always take the high ground in the event that a battle is possible. Any of those things that would delay the time at which that person could go ahead and actually get into a point where they're physically making contact that you can take advantage means that if you're able to respond and they have a chance to see that, uh, there's a reasonable chance that they will, you know, discontinue their actions. And uh, actually, probably most saves in the United States, from my understanding, take place without a, uh, without a round being fired, even though a, a firearm of some type was displayed. Gary, have you ever encountered a case in your career where you felt that the, the the shooting fell within the strict legal definitions of when deadly force is required, but you felt in your heart that maybe that shooting didn't have to happen. Yeah, I've, I've seen that. I've, I've, uh, keep in mind my last 10 years in law enforcement was reviewing police shootings. And one of the patterns that, that we saw in law enforcement shootings was that at times officers put themselves into the position where they didn't have any other resource available to them. So the shooting itself was, was certainly a justified shooting. However, however, if that officer had stepped backwards a step instead of forward a step or or something like that, maybe if it, it, it wouldn't have occurred, wouldn't have, would not have been necessary. Uh, you know, we're one of the complaints that we get frequently when we share content like this is the second guessing element. Uh, 
it's my belief, and I, I think Don would probably back me up, that criminal justice is nothing but second guessing. You're 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 taking information that you were you were not a party to, and judging their actions and second guessing whether what they did was right or whether whether it was wrong. Man, that's so right. I mean, so we can say here, I think unequivocally, that if you uh, uh, fire your gun uh, at or towards somebody, uh, that action is going to be second-guessed an awful lot. Uh, and, and who amongst the four of us here haven't looked at a piece of video and rewatched the same point six seconds 30 times to see how how every little fraction of a second affected the incident and not only that sean i me personally in in the event that i was involved in many years ago a deadly force incident i can look back and second guess my own actions and there is i can't think of a case where if you sat down and did an honest assessment of the of what transpired that you couldn't have said that you couldn't say well i should have done this or if i'd have done if i'd have taken this action maybe uh the outcome could have been different uh, so second guessing is is uh has kind of is is a a bad label to me uh it, when I was on the tactical unit, we did an after-action debriefing on every call-out. What was that? That was second-guessing. We were saying, hey, Sniper, you set up here when if you'd have set up there, it would have been better. Hey, we should have thrown a flashbang at this time instead of that time. Uh, so second-guessing, I believe, shouldn't be the negative that uh, that it is perceived but each time we share content especially if we talk about a specific incident mm. we we are almost always accused of second guessing especially if there's anything to infer that maybe uh things would have could have been handled different yeah, but Don, you and I, we do that. Uh, we'll, we'll call it a post-play review. How about that, Gary? We do the post. We do the post-play review on these cases because you and I have looked at a number of self-defense cases together, and we know what things the prosecutor is going to pick apart, and we know what things are going to give us a challenge when we're trying to defend a defender in a court of law. Absolutely. And there's no way to learn unless we review those that have had uh, good and bad outcomes. You know, Gary, I think when you're talking about second guessing, um, you, as you said, that there can be a negative connotation to that. And I think when you made your first comment, you were talking about sometimes when listeners review the things that we've said or they hear how we've sort of done the anatomy of a or a dissection of a particular case 
The accusation of second-guessing suggests that we know better or that the other person was wrong and this is how they should have done it. And that's the wrong perspective. And I think really what you're saying, and I completely agree, is that Sean's post-event uh, analysis or uh, almost Monday morning quarterbacking is not designed to say that people did things wrong. If they did, we would certainly want to say that, but really to look at even situations where things occurred right or legally, but there may have been other options. There may have been a better way to do something that was clearly legal to start with so that people will think about scenarios. They'll reflect on their own perspective and Underlying all of that is, and Steve talks about this a lot, there are cues. There are things that happen as many of these events unfold that with someone that's reflected on things, that's had good, solid training, can see and use it as part of their own toolbox, their uh, strategy or tactical toolbox to completely avoid what may very well turn out to be a life or death scenario knowing full well that even when you prevail in a life or death scenario, that's just the first fight. The, the second fight is the one that you have if you are prosecuted. And well, and, yeah, absolutely. And that's how I responded to a member. Uh, I, I don't remember which case it was, but just within the last couple of weeks, and that's exactly what I said. All, we don't ever say, well, they did wrong. We say here are things that may might have worked. Here is some more tools for your toolbox. And we would be doing our, our members a disservice if we did offer those suggestions to give them options, to give them more tools. The more tools that you have in your toolkit or your toolbox, the, the more likelihood of success you will have. Well, you know, and we've found in our explorations that there's some very understandable, almost natural impulses that defenders have that lead them into trouble in what would otherwise be completely justifiable self-defense circumstances. And one thing I'm thinking right off the bat is a very common scenario is that there is a stranger at night outside your house, potentially banging on your door, seeming as if they're trying to get in. The the instinct is to go blow that door open and go out and mow the intruder down because they seemingly have demonstrated that they're a violent interloper on your you know, property, right? But we found time and again that leaving a place, place of safety to go put yourself in more danger is a recipe for disaster when it comes to mounting a legal defense to your self-defense shooting. And uh, we've got countless stories of people who have either gone outside to meet the threat or who have fired through the door or have even waited right behind the door for someone to come through with, with varying results. And it's a completely understandable natural reaction, but if you've seen it go wrong enough times, then I think you can think twice about it. And, and Steve, 
you've talked a number of times on this podcast and we've written about it a lot about when it comes to defending your home in a circumstance like that that tactically strategically you're well advised to go get everyone to a place of safety and take a, a hard corner inside your home that's correct tell me about that well uh when i was on the team uh what we found when and we when you say the team the team you the mean SD, what team i'm so sorry the special uh response team it was a multi-precinct special response team when i was at the uh, constable's office in tarrant county and we were formed primarily for the main purpose was to execute writs of possession. That is, uh, these were high risk uh, entries in which we had been sent by the court to regain a property. Uh, typically a home uh, could be even a mobile home. Uh, it was quite often apartments in which there was a, a person or a tenant uh, or squatters or something that uh, it was a situation in which we felt that there was a high or reasonable likelihood of violence. Uh, the team was formed to make a forced entry if that person did not gain entry, and we had reasons to believe that would not be the case in order to uh, recover the, the place and displace that person. In many instances, uh, those persons had um, warrants out for them. And so the tricky part was getting into a room and making sure that you had everything locked down without actually entering the room itself. So let's just say that if I'm at a front door in a house and let's say the door's on the corner of the first room. Well, from the outside of the house, uh, with that door open by basically, you know, kind of cutting an arc from left to right or right to left, just kind of depends upon how it's set up, I can see everything that's inside that room from the outside with the exception of those corners that are at a 90 degree angle to me. And we refer to those as the hard corners. And in order to get eyes on that and dominate that, I literally have to enter the room with a portion of my body, at least my, my, my head, or at least you know one side of my head, and look in there. And so I always kind of uh, liken it to you know some of the pranks that perhaps we played on our you know our, our older siblings, our younger siblings, uh, our friends, where you would go into a room and what you wanted to do was you wanted to give that person a reason to come in that room, and then you would you know jump at them and yell at them and scare them. You know just a prank. Well, uh, even children know that if you stand in the middle of the room or anywhere where you can be observed from the doorway, it's not going to work. So what do they do? They actually go to a hard corner. They may not go all the way in, but they will get to one side of the, or the other side of the doorway so that when the person walks in, uh, they're not seen. And then when they see them, then they, you know, they take the action. Well, when I say take a hard corner, what I meant is, is if a homeowner, especially an armed homeowner, takes a hard corner in a, in a, in a you know, given room, uh, maybe the, you, you know, your bedroom, uh, it may be the bedroom of your children if you went in there together with your children, and you get everyone over in that corner in order for someone to actually get eyes on you 
they're going to have to have to penetrate that room. So when that occurs, I have a tactical advantage, and that advantage is I see them before they see me. And so my suggestion is, unless you need to leave a position in which you can get into a hard corner in order to perhaps go to another part of the house in order to protect another person that's uh, incapable or unable to protect themselves, that you simply stay in that hard corner. And if someone is trying to make entrance to your house, the safest place for you to be is actually going to be in that hard corner. And one of the reasons for that is that if I engage that person uh, when they come in the doorway and they see me at the same time that I see them, well, basically, uh, any advantage I may have is negated. And what's worse is that as a law-abiding concealed carrier homeowner, uh, I need to identify that person and make sure, A, that you know all the elements are there. And I know there are some presumptions, especially at night, that if a person does that, you know, you're given, you know, greater range to act. But by the same token, I very much would like to make sure, A, that is not someone that I don't need to shoot, like perhaps a, uh, a, a drunken friend. And I have a few friends that might be those drunken friends. Mm -hmm. uh, it might be perhaps someone that lived in my home before and uh, now had dementia and was trying to get home. It could be uh, there was an instance that we discussed not that long ago in which it was a drunken house guest that actually was trying to get, went outside, the door was locked, it was a duplex, he went to the wrong side of the duplex and became enraged when the owner wouldn't open the door because he thought that he was, you know, messing around with him. So I want to make sure all of those things are in play before I would actually use lethal force against that person. And uh, the flip side is not true. They, they're not playing by the same rules. I need to make sure that I can lawfully and morally and justifiably engage that person. The other person does not. So taking a hard corner, I think, is very much to the uh, concealed carrier or the homeowner's advantage. And Gary, from the perspective of a homicide detective, if you go to a home shooting, and you've got a guy shot on the front porch compared to someone who shot was shot entering an internal room right off the bat. You've got different perspectives here, don't you? Well, absolutely, because if, if that person has made no realistic attempt to gain entry, they've committed no crime. Uh, so the the use of lethal force at, force at that time it would not be justified. Uh, leaving a position of safety is one thing, but leaving the position of safety uh, and then shooting someone uh, in, in in your home in the cases you we profile several of these cases. Yeah. And they've all turned out very bad for the homeowner. Uh, like I said, if at the very worst, if somebody's on your front porch and banging hard on your door, if they're not making an attempt to get in, they've committed nothing more than trespass. And in most states, for to commit the trespass, you have to ask them to leave first. 
so um, it just it's harder to make an argument argument in my book that an incident is self defense when you go to the incident, even if it's a matter of just crossing a threshold inside your home you're you're relatively safe if that person breaches and makes the entry then the the circumstances are different but prior to that they haven't committed a crime that would warrant the use of deadly force well and to your point Gary we've done a number of cases where the home defender went to the door or even opened the door or went outside to engage the threat those uh, either end badly legally or they often end in tragedy because of Steve's scenario where it was a mistaken identity. And then we have others where people have tactically retreated to a more defensible place in their home. And if the intruder has followed them there, those cases usually end up uh, pretty good for the homeowner from a legal perspective. And Don, you and I have talked about this. I mean, that's a lot about those the differences in the thresholds, like Gary mentioned there, that a potential aggressor or intruder has to cross goes a long way to disambiguate the legal parameters for making and defending a self-defense claim. Yeah, we've talked about this idea of this zone of ambiguity, not knowing for sure what's actually happening, being fearful and apprehensive that something bad is happening, maybe jumping to some conclusions based upon limited information. And a lot of that stuff is what's happening when somebody's pounding on the door and you don't know if they're trying to pound hard enough to break through to attack you or whether they're lost or drunk or uh, suffering from a mental illness of some sort. Uh, I think, in, in large part, what Gary is saying is people have sort of an implied permission to go up on someone's porch to knock on the door. They aren't committing a crime at that point. There's sort of an implied consent. It's when you touch somebody with your hand in a socially acceptable way to shake hands or pat somebody on the back. You're not committing a battery even though technically you touched them. There's sort of some, just some social conventions that allow people to act in a certain way. Uh, somebody knocks on the door and it's clear t to you, you don't want them there, that they're trespassing, maybe they're being aggressive. As Gary said, you may very well have to tell them to leave. That's this concept of trespass after warning. Shopkeepers do that all the time when people are allowed to be in the store, but they're, uh, they're a problem. Sometimes it's even in writing. And then if they show up again, they can actually be arrested for trespassing. We don't have that when we're talking about our own house, but there's this zone of ambiguity, I guess. When somebody breaks into the house, when they crawl through a window, break a door, smash something to get in, there's really no question that they are illegally entering the home. The protections that the homeowner has 
in virtually every jurisdiction, the presumptions of the reasonable fear, the presumptions that you can respond to an intruder by using force up to and including deadly force all kind of kick in. If someone's banging on the door and you don't like it, even if you may be somewhat fearful that they intend to do more than that, does not give you the right, does not trigger the presumptions, does not give you justification for shooting through a door or doing something violent uh, in response. Yeah. Hey, Gary, I'd love to, as we're kind of wrapping up here, uh, play upon your uh, ample law enforcement experience and investigating homicides, your involvement in investigating police shootings, and then you're our frontline contact when it comes to dealing with CCW safe members who uh, are involved in incidents. What, and I'll, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but what's something we haven't talked about now that's a, a issue that would bear some discussion? I think the thing that is most overlooked, we, we were kind of touching on it at the beginning, uh, but I don't think the average concealed carrier has any idea of the of what he will he or she will face if they're involved in a deadly encounter. Um, from the investigation, the possible court actions, both criminal and then potentially later civil, the the emotional toll that it it will take on an individual if if they have taken a human life or been in a life or death situation a lot of times when i'm talking to to concealed carriers they can almost be a little bit cavalier about uh well you know the second amendment protect me and uh if i'm attacked i'll just blow them away or whatever and 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 they don't have a realistic grasp of how this one incident that may develop and be finished in a matter of seconds is going to stay with them for weeks, months, years, possibly decades. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, on a personal note, my 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 use of force was. My, I was involved in a lethal encounter in 1979, well over four decades. Uh, it is something that is still with me emotionally 40, 42 years later. Uh, and I anticipate it will be with me the rest of my life. Uh, so as far as a subject to, that I think would be good for an in-depth, uh, conversation would would be uh, you know just really what you're going to face over the long haul beyond the justified not justified uh, beyond the jury verdict if it gets to that point beyond the civil verdict uh, just the 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 whole um, uh, oh, what am I trying to say? The the weight of of your actions and the impact on your everyday life from then on. Well, and let me. Yeah, I hear a lot, and I've even heard this 
in a defense attorney's opening arguments that it's better to be uh, judged by 12 than carried by six, right? But I would rather endure almost anything else uh, than to be judged by 12. And, and to, to your point, Gary, and I, I, you're the only one here that can speak to sort of the emotional um, toll of having been involved in a fatal shooting. But just the, the prosecution, if, if maybe it's worth beating this dead horse. Because, uh, Don, you, you and I have dealt with accused citizens over the course of years, really, who have exhausted any money that they would have had, any credit that they would have had, the the money of friends and relatives. They are they are essentially unemployable while they are accused of a homicide related crime. And when it comes to maintaining personal relationships, uh, dreaming of a future with your family, forget your retirement planning. I mean, you're you're faced with either rebuilding your life from what seems like less than nothing, or uh, getting used to uh, a stainless steel toilet. Well, the emotional toll that Gary talks about and what I've experienced through clients that I have represented in a lethal self-defense shooting who were acquitted, and rightfully so, nonetheless spent that couple of years in jail or just wondering every day what their fate was going to be, um, that wasn't the end of it when the case is over. The lawyers move on, the judges move on, but... It, it's with the individual who is involved in the lethal defense shooting forever, even when things go well, much less when things don't go well, and you're talking about that stainless steel toilet living with a bunch of people that you would never, ever choose as your friends. You, you talk about something that struck me because a few years ago, um, a CCW Safe member, Stephen Maddox, was involved in a lethal self-defense shooting. Gary was involved right in early on in the case. I was involved from the, the very beginning. We watched this case unfold almost two years from the incident to trial. Uh, there was a, a terrific group of defense lawyers that put on an aggressive and effective case the prosecutor's case wilted. They should have known earlier than when they did that they didn't have the case they thought they had. And the jury was quick in acquitting Stephen of everything. So after facing guaranteed life in prison upon conviction, he was suddenly, for the first time in two years, a free man. We've touched base with Stephen off and on since then. And to to sort of emphasize and underscore some of the things that we've touched on, um, we're going to talk to Stephen some more. I'm not exactly sure how that's going to take place, but we're going to now, several years post-incident, talk to Stephen about those first couple of years and then the next couple of years and maybe the next couple of years after that to see how he's doing, first and foremost, um, how this 
how he's been able to overcome the emotional trauma, the financial devastation that he suffered early on, and just see how he's doing. Because I think there's going to be a lot of real life lessons there. Information that I hope, uh, understanding that Stephen came out the best anybody could ever hope for that's involved in one of these, he was acquitted. There was no criminal punishment. There was the punishing aspect of the process, but he came out great. And still, it was an absolutely traumatic, and what I expect to hear from him is a lifelong experience. And I say that because when Gary said he's talked to some people, and they're usually fairly new gun owners or people that um, adopt kind of a, a cavalier attitude. It's because they haven't been through anything like that. They haven't experienced or maybe even heard the stories of people that have. So I'm hoping that we are able to sit down with Stephen. We're able to pick his brain and have him tell us in his honest, candid way that he is uh, and, and tell us what his life is like now and, and what it's been for the last uh, three, four years. All right, guys, that's the show. Thanks again for listening through to the end. Hopefully we'll have that conversation with Stephen Maddox soon. Uh, before that, we'll probably have another conversation with Tatiana Whitlock about a couple of cases that she brought to our attention. Until then, I hope you uh, be smart, stay safe, take care.